All right, as you're having a seat, please turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. As we, as we start this morning, I wanna, I'm going to show you a, a video clip from uh, Princess Bride. So, um, well, I, I like hearing a couple of weeks. That's good. You know, it came out in 87, so I thought, well, this is a little bit dated, so I better give you a little background. The clip that we're going to watch is of uh, Wesley, the hero. And in this clip, Wesley's dead. Right? He's dead. And his friend Inigo Montoya brings him in because uh, Inigo, who's uh, his acquaintance and has also been bested or beaten by Wesley. Inigo needs Wesley alive so that Inigo can avenge himself on the man who killed his father. Right? So he brings, uh, he brings Wesley into Miracle Max because he needs a miracle. Right? So that's, that's the clip we're going to watch here. His daddy can't talk. Look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead, he's slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. All right, so Wesley's only mostly dead, right? Well, you know... There's really no such thing, right? Mostly dead. You're either dead or you're alive. That's it. And dead things can't do anything for themselves. Dead things can't raise themselves back to life. Dead things need some miraculous external intervention to solve the problem. And that's what Paul, where Paul starts in Ephesians chapter 2. In fact, he's going to drill down really deep on this concept of what it means to be dead in sin before he talks about how wonderful it is to be alive in Christ. Because we really can't appreciate the beauty of being alive in Christ until we know what it means to be dead in sin. So that's where we're going to start. Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to read with me the first three verses. Paul says, And you were dead. Not mostly dead. You were dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul says, this is our state, this is our status, this is our condition, we're dead in sin. A couple years ago, uh, my kids heard uh, some kind of commotion, it was out in the backyard, up in the trees, and uh, the, the sun had set, it was kind of dusk, kind of dark, so they went out onto the back porch, porch. They're, they're hearing all this commotion, they look up, they could see the silhouette of a bobcat up in the trees, and as soon as they came out onto the porch, bobcat scrambled down the tree, ran away, but then they heard this little thump on the, the floor of the woods right behind our house, so they got flashlights, they went out there, and they found a baby squirrel. A tiny, tiny baby squirrel just fit in the palm of one hand. And so my daughter, who is the lover of all things furry, took this squirrel and named him Winston. And so Winston came into our home, and she kind of nursed Winston and fed Winston. We discovered subsequently that there are actually people who devote their lives to squirrel rescue. Who knew? All right, what a calling in life. So, uh, you know, we're, we're rescuing this squirrel, and it was really kind of cool because Winston would let us hold him and pet him, and he'd run around on the floor and come to us when we fed him, and he was doing really well uh, for about two weeks. And then one morning, my daughter walked out, and Winston was dead. I say Winston was only mostly dead. 
Uh, Tristy picked him up, and she could see just this tiny little, you know, his chest just kind of going up and down just barely. And so Anna Joy had to go to school, and she's really upset. And Tristy held Winston until Winston died. And we had to deal with death in our family. And when we think about death, that's kind of normally what we think, right? We think the end of life physically, right? Cessation of physical life is what we associate with death. And we're around it all the time. We have friends and we have family members whose life on earth physically ends. And so that's kind of our normal concept. But death biblically is a much, much bigger concept. And really, it's an even more significant concept than just the end of physical life. So I want to take you back to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. And a description of the first death, so to speak. It says, The Lord commanded the man, that is, Adam. And he said to him, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. What it literally says is this. God says, I made this entire garden, and you can eat from every tree. In fact, I want you literally in Hebrew to eat, eat. Right, just I want you to enjoy the richness of all that I have provided. But there is one tree... In this entire garden, in this entire orchard that you can't eat from, because in the day that you eat from that one, you will die, die. Right? I want you to eat, eat, and enjoy all of my bounty and generosity, but don't eat just from that single one, because you, you will surely die, or you literally, you're going to die, die. Now, the moment that Eve took that fruit, took a bite, handed it to Adam, he took a bite, did they die? No, and yes. Right? No, no, they didn't die physically. It was not a cessation of their physical life. But what happened was they were taken out of the garden. They were removed. And they had to live separate from the riches of the blessing of being in perfect fellowship with God. That is, they they spiritually died. In that moment, there was alienation or or estrangement in their relationship with God. The, The spirit of man, which was designed to live in perfect harmony with the spirit of God was now estranged from his spirit. That is death. That is, it's a separation. The inevitable result was that they would eventually physically die as well. That is, the physical body would be separated from the material body, but the death they experienced in that day was spiritual. Okay? Illustration of that is from uh, Prodigal Son. Remember, he, he takes all of his dad's wealth. He goes to a far-off country. He spends and spends and spends. He's impoverished. He's living with the pigs, eating their food, comes to his senses, and as he returns, his father embraces him, and he says, my son who was dead is now alive. Well, he had never physically died, but he had been estranged from his father. The relationship was no longer intact. That's what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 2. He's speaking to people who are physically alive, and he says to them, you were dead. Literally, he says, you being dead, that is, in a state of death, walked or lived your lives as dead people in a dead world. That's what's wrong with you. And you're born into the world this way, and then you live out your entire existence on this earth that way, unless there's this dramatic external intervention to bring you back to life. And really, it's worse than you thought. So last week, uh, I told you about my my little incident, you know, um, working out, passed out, fell, hit my head, knocked myself out, you know, I kind of went through that quickly. There's a little, a little bit more of the story. And um, that's this. When, when, I, when I actually started kind of slowly waking up, I was super disoriented. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, like, I don't really feel anything. I don't, I don't feel badly. I don't, 
You know, because I think what, what had happened was my, my brain and body hadn't really completely reconnected something, and I feel fine. And then I, I tried to kind of sit up and realized, oh, man, there's something deeply wrong with my neck here. And then I thought, am I crying? Why would I be crying? And I reached up and I realized, oh, I'm not crying. I'm, I'm bleeding all over the place. And, and somebody at some point, I don't even remember who it was, said, um, you know, ambulance is on its way. Do you, you think you're going to want them to, to take you in? And I was like, Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, because when I was first coming to, I thought, I, I can finish this workout. <laughs> I'm going to pop up. We're good to go. We're just on round two, three rounds. And then I remember thinking, okay, this is not good. This is, this is worse than I thought. It, what Paul is trying to make the point in the first three verses is this. It's worse than you think. Right? It, it's much worse than you think to be Dead in sin, because if you're dead in sin, you are incapable of fixing that problem. And the reason that I think he he drills down deep on this first is because we don't really appreciate the grace of God until we understand how genuinely broken we were apart from Christ. Nor do I think that we can have that fire lit, that passion to to share our faith until we realize how broken the people around us are that, that don't know Jesus and how desperately they need the spirit of God to intervene in their lives. So I want you to listen again, really carefully to Paul's description. He says, now you being dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked or conducted your lives according to the course of this world, right? He's going to give three descriptive phrases. He says, first, according to the course of this world, or uh, literally according to the age of this world. That is, this is the culture, this is the atmosphere, this is the, the air that you breathed. And just like a, a fish doesn't know that water is wet, you don't even know it. And when you're dead in sins, you don't know you're, you're dead. And if you walk up to one of your friends who doesn't know Jesus and you say, you're dead, they're going to go, you're crazy. What are you even talking about? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person, that is the person apart from Christ, dead in sin, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. You, you just you can't get it. You were living out your life according to the course of this world, and you couldn't know anything different. Second phrase. So this is according to the course or the age of this world. It's according to the prince of the power of the air that spirit which is now working in the sons of disobedience. That is, when you're dead in sin, you don't know it, but you're under the dominion of the adversary, the devil, and you're not probably even consciously aware. In fact, most of the world denies that Satan even exists, right? He's got horns and a tail, and he wears red, a little red jumper, and he's just a ridiculous caricature and in complete denial of his even existence, right? You can't see it. You can't know it until God's Spirit opens your eyes. Again, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, in their case, the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They're dead and they can't lift themselves up. They're blind and they can't see. They're walking according to the course of this world because that's completely natural. It's the only thing that they've ever known apart from Christ. Third, he says, verse 3, Among them we too all, every single one of us, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, 
And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Okay, less of flesh, uh, we, we understand that, right? That's um, eating, drinking, sex. It's things that we do with our body. But Paul says it's not just what we do with our body, but it's also what we do with our mind. And it's not just the thoughts, right? Just ideas that come in our mind. But what he says is it's, it's our reasoning. It's, our, it's the way that we think. So all of that is broken. And the reason is that we are by nature. He says you were born into this family and you behave consistent with this family. This is your nature. Children of wrath. That as you come into the world dead and you have the sentence of further death upon you because God is holy in every respect. And you're broken and sinful, and that sin must be punished. And so you are, by nature, children of wrath. That's, that's your identity. That's, in fact, who you are. That's a really dark picture. And before he's going to talk about life in Christ, he says, we've got we to really understand the nature of this darkness. How does the world respond to that? Well, l- largely in denial, right? There, there are things that don't work right in the world, but it's not because of moral reasons. There's not moral accountability to a creator. There are things that just are broken that we can fix. That's the world's concept, right? We can fix these things. Racism, that's not a moral problem. That's a problem of education. How do we deal with with prejudice and discrimination and racism? We put people in a classroom and give them diversity training, right? Because that's going to fix the anger and the hatred and the fear in their hearts, right? No, it's not. It's not. Poverty. Well, that's a problem we can fix. We just need to release more capital, get more capital flowing into an impoverished area, and we can lift everyone out of poverty, and we can solve the problem of homelessness forever, right? Because there's no moral issue involved in poverty, right? Sickness and death. There's nothing moral about sickness and death, right? We can solve it. Science and technology can step in, and we can make people lead healthier lives and longer lives. In fact, we might find that little genetic switch and flip that switch, and people could live forever. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I don't think so. Remember, there's a reason that God posted an angel at the gateway of the garden. So that Adam and Eve couldn't get back in and take from the tree of life and live eternally separated spiritually from God. Dead things can do nothing for themselves to bring themselves back to life. In fact, dead things don't even know that they're dead. Now, verse 4. Paul says, but God. Stop right there. (laughs) But God. Got a highlighter, highlight that, put a little circle around it, you know, maybe some fireworks that are going off on the side. Those are two of the absolute best words in the entire Bible. You are dead in your sins. You don't even know that you're dead in sins. You can't lift yourself out. You're you're not aware. You're living consistently with being a dead person in a dead world, but God. Okay, man, thank you for the hallelujah. But God, two of the absolute best words in the entire Bible. Now we can turn the corner. Paul says, but God. God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul says, you 
are saved. You're saved. What does that, what does that mean? What, what exactly is salvation? It's a really common biblical term, but so often we just kind of brush right through it because we've heard it so often. We don't think about what does it mean particularly in this context to be saved? Well, in the context, what we're being saved from or rescued from, which is literally what the word means, deliverance, being delivered from the wrath of God that must be poured out upon every sin. Right? We are children of wrath. That's our nature. And God's wrath is upon us. But now in Jesus Christ, the debt of sin is paid. We're rescued from that. So the wrath of God no longer rests upon us. We're rescued from that. We're delivered from that. That's what salvation means to us. Right? That, I mean, it's a fearful thing. Isn't it? It's a, it to, to, be under, to be under the wrath of God. To be morally accountable for every deed and every thought and every word. It's a fearful thing. There, there are some fears in our lives that they're, they're rational, right? They're things that we should be afraid of. We also have fears that are, that are irrational. Right? We call those phobias. It's an irrational fear. It's an unreasonable fear. Yesterday, I kind of I thought, that my mind is just going down this pathway. I thought, well, let's, let's look at that for a moment. What are, what are the irrational fears that people wrestle with? Sometimes in place of the ones they, things they should be afraid of. Right, so this is what I came up with. Turophobia. That's the fear of cheese. Like, I don't know why you'd be afraid of cheese. Omphalophobia, that's the fear of belly buttons. Like, really? Okay, yeah, apparently people are afraid of their own belly button and others. Um, paganophobia, that's the fear of beards. I, had, I heard one wife, first service, she goes, amen. <laughs> Coolrophobia is the fear of clowns. And some of you are going, that's not a phobia. That's real. That's true. <laughs> clowns are creepy, right? I'm afraid of clowns. Uh, nomophobia, that's the fear of being without cell phone coverage. <laughs> so I, just, I thought I'd just wait for a moment and see if I see anybody's hands twitching, reaching down. Is that, could I be without? I, I have a fear. My fear is um, claustrophobia, right? Fear of tight places. And I don't feel it all the time. I just feel it. There are just really two places where I feel claustrophobic. One is on airplanes. And um, I'll try to describe this, but can't really explain it. But I, I, don't, I don't mind actually sitting by the window. I don't know if it's because I can look out the window and it's big open space. And I'm okay on an aisle, but I, I need an aisle. What, I, what makes me claustrophobic is if I'm in the middle seat, right? For some reason, I'm like, okay, that's, I'm just freaking out here. I just really don't enjoy. Can I trade seats with you? I mean, I, I will ask because I just feel, I feel which, you know, I know it's totally irrational. Like if I had the aisle seat, where would I go? <laughs> You're still in this tube flying through the air. Where would I go? I don't know, but I just feel better if I'm on an aisle. I don't feel so claustrophobic. The other place that I experience claustrophobia is in hotel rooms. I don't know if you ever noticed, but um, when they remake the beds, they tuck the sheets in really, really tight, right? So if I climb into that bed and my feet get trapped, I'm like, ah. So I will walk into the hotel bedroom and I'll, I'll untuck. That's the first thing I do, untuck the sheets. All right. I can, I can relax, which I say, you know, that's not really irrational. I might need to escape. Middle of the night, man, I got to go somewhere. So I got to have, my feet have to be free. Now, I use that illustration because in Hebrew, death is actually pictured in a manner in which claustrophobics can relate. Death is pictured as a tight, confining space. It's this deep, dark 
pit that you can't get out of. It's a narrow, constraining grave that you can't get out of. It's cords wrapped around you. That's death. On the other hand, in Hebrew, salvation, the primary word for salvation, means a broad place. Right? It's, it's the aisle seat and the doors open and you have a parachute. You can just go. You're free. It's open. It's broad. That's salvation. Right? Being taken from this tight place, constricted place, to a broad open place. You're rescued. You're saved. Or in other words, it's both negative and positive. You're being saved from sin's punishment. That is the wrath of God that's upon you. It's pressing down. It's constraining you which you can't do anything to lift that weight off of you. But it's also being saved for life with Christ. It's being open and free to be alive. That's what salvation is. It's both negative and positive. What you're set free from and what you're set free for. That's salvation. So notice the words that Paul, or the phrases Paul uses to describe it. Verse 5, he says, Even when we were dead, repeats that same phrase, we being dead, In our transgressions. First, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Second, he raised us up with him. Third, he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. What Paul is saying is everything that God did for Jesus, he has done for you. And he actually uses three words that are exceptionally rare words. In fact, one of the words is only found in Paul's writing here and nowhere else in classical or Koine Greek. In other words, Paul made it up. He said, I got to make up a word that describes all that God has done for us in Christ. He's he's raised us up to new life. He's he's brought us from death into life. He has seated us with him in the heavenly places. He's made us alive together. We're not dead any longer. Everything that God has done for Jesus Christ, he has done for us. I love the way that Tim Keller said it. Jesus sat in our seat, that is the seat of wrath, so that we could sit in his seat, That is the seat of honor at the Father's right hand. Now, permit me, I want to just get grammatical for just a second, okay? Um, Because I think it's kind of helpful to really understand exactly what Paul means if we unpack this a little bit. Now, first service, my my first Greek professor was sitting in the back. And, you know, I told him, I said, I'm going to do this just for you. I want to describe a phrase here in Ephesians chapter 2. It is a perfect passive, paraphrastic construction. And he cheered. Okay. (laughs) And what that means is this. Read with me the end of verse 5. It says, by grace you have been saved. Verse 8, by grace you have been saved. It's the same phrase both places. My translation says, by grace you have been saved. Other translations say, by grace you are saved. And really it's both. Passive voice means this. It means God did something for you and to you that you didn't do to yourself. You have been. It was done for you. The paraphrastic means, in a sense, this is ongoing. The perfect tense means it happened in the past, but the results last forever. In other words, you have been saved. God's done this for you, and you are being saved, and you will be saved forever. All of the results, all of the blessings in Christ that were bought for you at the cross of Jesus Christ will be continuing results for the absolute rest of your life. You have been raised up to new life with him. You were seated with him in the heavenly places. You're, you're dead, but now you're alive, and, and you get to enjoy that forever. Okay? That, that's what Paul is saying here. So the question is simply this. How did he do it? How did God bring about this miraculous intervention. Read with me verse 8. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Yesterday, just across the street here, there were 100,000 people who were cheering on the Aggies, tens of thousands throughout the world, all watching on TV. And, uh, you know, every time that Aggies play in a game, right, if you're an Aggie, we all do the same yells, right, over and over again. We know all those yells, and then we never get tired. We saw Varsity's horns off again, right? We never get bored with that. Why is that? Well, because these are things that are they're part of Aggie culture, and they remind us of this shared identity as we link arms together. Aggies never get bored of those things. And I pray for us as a church that we'd never get bored of talking about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Okay, because this is really the, this is the heart of the gospel message. This is the heart of our new identity that we experience God's grace. And so he says it like this. It's by grace and it is a gift. Literally, dorea means a free gift. It's by grace. And Paul says, let me explain. I mean, a free gift. Don't, don't misunderstand. It's absolutely and utterly Free to you. So let me illustrate. Let me illustrate. Uh, imagine that you are with my family on a Christmas morning. And you see my kids get up early and they look at the tree and there are all kinds of presents under the tree. And I kind of meander out a little bit later. I'm kind of tired. And I tell my kids, this is for you. It's a free gift. Mom and I bought these things for you. None of these presents are for us. They're all for you. It's a free gift. Take them. However, I'm still a little tired, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to bed. And what I want you to do is, Anna Joy, make me one of those really nice omelets that you make. And Ben, you know how I like my coffee. I want it really dark and black with just a tiny bit of raw sugar in it. And then once you've done these things for me, you may have your free gifts. It's not a free gift, is it? There's a condition attached. Or, or I say to them, you know, all these things are free to you. Go ahead and open them. But I just need to tell you that in the coming year, if you don't get all A's and respect your mom all the time, I'm going to take all the gifts back. It's not a free gift. Paul says, let me explain what it means to be given grace. It means it's, it's unconditional, undeserved favor from God. And if that doesn't help you understand enough, it's a gift. It's a, it's a free gift. And if that doesn't help you enough, let me tell you, it's not by your works It's not by what you can accomplish on your own. In other words, it's not a reward for good behavior. And it's not a bargain. You do your part, God does his part, and you come together and you somehow participate in raising yourself from the dead and getting eternal life. No, it's not a bargain. Nor is it like a a zero interest loan where you drive the car out of the parking lot for free, no money down. But if you don't keep making payments, the car will be repossessed. Salvation will be taken back. No, that's, that's not the way that God gives free gifts. It's an absolutely and utterly free gift. And everywhere that Paul went and he preached this, people said, that's too good to be true. And Paul said, I know. Isn't that awesome? Because nowhere in the rest of your life will you experience something like this other than from God. As Paul says in Romans 4 verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So what Paul is saying there is it's antithetical to think that you contribute by your good works to your salvation, to the one who does not work, but instead believes. Right? Which answers another question is, so what's our part, right? What's our part? Well, we, we believe. God has saved us, but he saved us through faith. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. So what is faith then? 
What is, what is faith? I, you know, honestly, it's a really simple concept. We, we believe things every day. We trust in things every day. But then we come to the Bible, and I think sometimes we overcomplicate what faith really means. It's very simple. In fact, in Hebrews 11, we're given a definition. It's this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. A couple of things to note. Faith is not certainty. And faith is not proof. The writer says, faith is assurance, it's confidence, it's conviction. Okay, it's conviction. You can't, you can't prove God, you can't prove he exists, you can't prove resurrection. You weren't there, you didn't see it, and you don't see God, he's spirit, but you become convinced. You're, you're convicted. And so you trust. Okay, let me illustrate. Uh, when I was in seminary, my roommate was uh, a, a guy from rural New Jersey. He's from a little town in New Jersey called Sakasana. And he used to tell me, he said, yeah, Sakasana, is, it's Indian. It means land of great men. I was like, yeah, right. So uh, you're a great man from Sakasana. Um, yeah, well, his parents decided they'd come down for graduation. His mom flew down, but his dad took the train seven days from New Jersey to get from New Jersey uh, to Dallas. And um, I asked my roommate, Neil, I said, what's the deal, man? Why didn't, you, why didn't you get on the plane with your mom? He said, well, he's afraid to fly. He's never flown. And he won't fly. So seven days, he's on the train. So seven days, I have the opportunity to kind of marshal all of the arguments to prove to him why he should fly back, right? Why it's really actually very safe to fly on the plane. You know, there's low incidence of crashes and flying on a plane is safer than all these different things. You know, so I've got all my arguments in line. Uh, Mr. Lines arrives and, and I, I, I give him my, all my data, right? I give him all my spiel and, and I swear to you, he, this is what he says to me. No joke. He says, he said, Brian, Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always. <laughs> like, seriously, man. I gave you data, and you give me like a Bible pun. I'm not kidding. That was the conversation. And I worked on him the whole weekend. I could not convince him. He had no faith in airplanes and pilots. So he would not get on the plane. I, on the other hand, I love to fly. I love to fly everywhere, right? As long as I have an aisle seat. I'm good to go. I believe, I trust. In fact, I enjoy flying so much that when I sit down in that aisle seat and they begin to crank up the motors and stuff and going through all the checklists, I I fall asleep before we've even taken off, which makes my wife absolutely nuts. Because if you look around, there are people on the plane, "Mm," they've got some misgivings about being on a plane. They're a little bit frightened. A bit anxious. They have their doubts. They're gripping the armrests and their knuckles are white. But they got on the plane. They they exercised faith. They were convinced to such a degree that they were willing to entrust their lives to plane and pilot. So they got on. And so it is with faith. It's not absolute proof. Like I couldn't lean next to them and prove to them that this plane would fly in the air. I could say statistically speaking, it's more likely to stay in the air than it is to crash. Which, for those kind of folks, would make it even worse, right? But I could never prove that the plane would stay in the air. And so faith sometimes includes some doubts and fears and misgivings. But still they got on the plane. And so faith has two components. There's, in a sense, a, a passive element and an active element. The passive element is this. We become convinced. We look at the evidence. Something exists, not nothing. 
This is a grand effect that we call creation. It must have an adequate cause. How can I not believe in a creator that exists outside of creation? And and I have these four accounts of the resurrection. What's the most reasonable explanation? Well, I think the best explanation is that Jesus Christ did actually live, die, and he was raised from the dead. I'm, I'm becoming convinced as I look at the evidence and the Spirit of God is working on my heart to draw me to Jesus. And then I'm hearing stories from my friends and God's changes in their lives. And I'm seeing those changes and I become convinced. That's the passive side in a sense of faith is God's Spirit convincing me and drawing me. And then the active side is then I choose to believe. I choose to trust. That's why you see throughout the New Testament, people ask, what must I do to be saved? They're told, believe. It's a command. It's an imperative. It's something that you can do. You can believe. Because you become convinced by the Spirit of God, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then God saves you. And your faith may be great. Your faith may be kind of small at that moment. Your faith might include complete confidence or your faith may have some doubts and fears mixed in. But what's important to note is it's not your faith or the quality of your faith or the quantity of your faith that saves you. You know what saves you? God. Right? Because dead things can't bring themselves back to life. So God saves you through faith. It's the work of God on your behalf. So notice what Paul says in verse 9. It's not as a result of works. It's not a result of your contribution so that at the end of the story, no one gets to boast except God. God can boast because he can say, I brought dead things back to life. But we can't boast. We can't. You know, I'm kind of a, a student of what happens in the culture. I like to read and see what's happening in our culture and cultures around the world. And uh, there's a category of people that have begun to emerge in the United States, and they're labeled the nuns. You guys have probably heard about this. The nuns are people who have no religious affiliation, but normally they label themselves as deeply spiritual. Right? So no religious affiliation, but deeply spiritual people. Then if you look more broadly throughout the world, there are a lot, a lot more people who are, who are deeply, deeply religious, but reject Jesus. We say to ourselves, well, how can that be? How can there be so many people who, who they're deeply spiritual, but they're not religious at all when they reject Jesus? And how can there be so many people who are deeply religious, but reject Jesus? And the answer is this, we like to boast. Dead people actually like to boast. That's one of our characteristics. We want to say, I brought something to the table. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 10, he condemns the Jews and he says, look, these Jewish family members of mine, What they want is they want to have their own righteousness and reject the righteousness of God. Jesus spoke against these people constantly throughout his ministry. He said they believe in themselves that they're more righteous than others and that this relative degree of righteousness over other people around them is enough to make them adequate in the sight of God. And the answer to that is absolutely no. Salvation is the work of Christ where he takes dead people, which includes all of us, and raises us up to new life so that only God gets to boast. That's why evangelism has been described as one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's it. That's all we do. So if we're that broken, why did God bother? Why did he agree to step in and save us? Read with me again verse 4. It says, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love 
with which he loved us. Even we being dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. Verse 7, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did he do it? Well, he's rich in mercy. He's great in love. He has rich grace to shower upon us. He has kindness that he wants to bestow upon us. In other words, there's really nothing within us. It's just, uh, in a sense, the, the pity of God. I would describe it like this. It's pity with a purpose. God looks upon us in our dead state and he has pity. But it's pity for a purpose. Read with me verse 10. This is the end of the paragraph. He explains, because we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Why did God do all of this for really desperately broken people? Because God's rich in his mercy and his kindness. And, and, and what he did is he wanted to make us this showcase of his grace. The word for workmanship there is probably the word from which we get uh, the English word poem. Or it's also used of what a craftsman makes with his skill. Right? We, we, are, we are the beautiful work of an artisan, the creator of the universe. And he, he rescued us and saved us so that he could take us and display us. And display then those little works of art in a sense that we do. Our good works. Have you ever walked into the home of a family that has small children? You look on the refrigerator door and what do you see? Uh, you see works of art right, <laughs> all over the, the fridge. Right? Maybe corner, corner of the little kids and go, hey, what, this is really this is a beautiful painting. Uh, what is that? Is that a giraffe? Oh, no. Is, is it a boat? Oh, it's your dad. Okay, I see. Yeah, <laughs> I see the likeness. You know, but the parents love it, don't they? I mean, you, uh, often you can't even tell what you're looking at. But the parents find the most prominent place they can in their entire house, and they, they put up these pictures everywhere. Why? They, they, they love it because their kids made it, and their kids gave it to them as a gift. So I remember years ago I was reading this passage, and I just had this thought popped into my mind. I thought, I wonder if it wouldn't be cool if in heaven God has a huge refrigerator. Right? And, and what's he, what does he put on his refrigerator door? He puts our good works. You know, and the angels come by and they look at it and they go, really? What is that? And Jesus says, well, you know, that was a cup of cold water in my name. That was sending water down to Houston. That was going down and tearing out sheetrock. That was going to your neighbor who's sick and can't cook and you made a meal. That was mowing their lawn. That was just having courage just to speak about Jesus to them and pray for them and Things that nobody ever sees, and if the angels saw it, they go, okay, whatever. But God said, but, but my child, my workmanship, my poem made more poetry. Right? The, the, the work of my hands, the creator, the, the great artisan of the universe made you so that you would go out and, and make things that reflect his kindness and his grace and his beauty. All of this done for you. So, how do we apply this? Let me give you a few thoughts. First is this, believe. Again, I, I hope that you never get tired of hearing about grace and about the gospel. I hope every time you hear it, you go, yes, let's sing that song again. Let's do that yell again. Because every Sunday you're going to hear it. And if on this Sunday it was the first time it kind of really clicked for you, you said, okay, I get it now. Okay, I get it. I don't, I don't actually 
contribute to this. I just, I just reach out and say, thank you. I receive it as a gift. I'll tell you, I've talked to so many people through the years. There's just been a moment like this. Maybe they've come for years to church. Maybe they're exposed to all kinds of things. And they, they got baptized and they sang in choirs and, and they gave money. And, but, but it never really clicked that, okay, yeah, Jesus died for the sins of the world. That's me. And, and I believe that. And maybe this morning, finally, God's Spirit is just convincing you. And you need just to, to cry out to God and say, thank you. Thank you for giving Jesus to me. I believe. At the moment you do that, debt of sins is removed forever. And you have life in Christ forever. And so I'd encourage you, if you've never made that decision, to make that this morning. Make that this morning. Or if you have made that decision in the last year, I want to encourage you, make this morning or sometime in the last year, and you'd like to talk to somebody about that decision and kind of what's next. I'm going to have some folks up here in the front. Some folks also at the guest table as you, as you walk out. If you'd like to talk to somebody about what's next, right? Because making that decision to trust Christ is just the start of learning to follow Jesus. And you want to know how to take those next steps? Please come up and, and speak with somebody about your next steps with Jesus. Second, be prepared. And be prepared. We said this is our semester challenge, right? Initiate spiritual conversations with at least two people who are far from Jesus. And maybe first time you heard that, you go, well, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't know how to start that conversation. I don't know where it should, should end. Again, these, these folks, if you want to come up and say, hey, teach me how to share my faith in Jesus. Teach me what that's all about. Uh, there were, uh, gosh, there were probably seven, eight folks who came up after the service and said, can we just sit down right now and learn how to share our faith? And so uh, one of our staff members just Took them off, sat in the back there, and walked them through. Here's the gospel. And when you have that moment that you can speak those words of the gospel, you need to know how to get to it and how to get to it clearly and concisely so people don't walk away and go, man, Adam's a really nice guy. I wonder what's up with that. No, Adam's a nice guy because of what Jesus has done in his life, removing that debt of sin and giving him life that changes him, transforms him. He needs to be able to talk about that. All right, so if you want to learn how to get trained to really be ready, we can, we can get that uh, done for you. Then third, uh, let's pray. Remember, this is, it's, salvation is not an issue of education, right? Nor, nor is racism or poverty or sickness or death. It's a spiritual transaction. And if the God of the world, it is Satan, is active and he's blinding people's minds, then one of the absolute most important things that we can do to start is just to pray. We enter into that moment of spiritual warfare and we beg God to pull back the veil, to pull back the blinders. Let's pray for our friends and family who don't know Jesus. So if you want to stick around for a while afterwards and get some of your friends and pray for friends and family, you want to come down front, pray with people, and let's pray. Let's let's take this moment really, really seriously where God is calling us to enter into this process of seeing people move from death into life. Right? That's, the, that's the, the great adventure that we have in life, is to participate with what God is doing spiritually in people's lives to get them out of death into life. And when we realize how dead we were before Jesus, it's just going to stir up our hearts and say, man, I, I've got to share my faith. I, I've got to tell people about Jesus because of all of the grace that I've received from him. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that we would walk out of here with a deeper appreciation of your kindness and your goodness, of the free nature of of life that lasts forever. I pray that we would walk out of here humbler people because we realize what it means to be dead in sin, unable to rescue ourselves, unable to even understand that we're dead. But you saved us. You've delivered us. 
Father, make us people who are grateful, that celebrate your grace, and people who want to give your grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week living in grace. And if you want to talk to some folks here or at the guest table as you walk out on the right.